Welcome to Stuck in the 90s. We are your weekly nostalgia podcast dedicated to chronicling the years 1990 through 1999. That kind of makes up the 90s, and that's what we're all about on this podcast. Podcast? This is a single podcast. We are your hosts. My name's Chris Elphick. And I'm Connor Thompson. This week, we're gonna, we're gonna cover October 8th to the 14th, where it began in 1990. 1990. Right. Let's do this thing. October 8th. The first McDonald's restaurant is opened in mainland China in Shenzhen near Hong Kong, uh, which we found an article on. China's first Big Mac attack. Diners crave pork buns. As you can imagine, this story is out of Shenzhen, China. Amid firecrackers, line dances, and crowd scenes usually found on the Chinese New Year, McDonald's today opened its first restaurant in China. A chain of 20 McDonald's employees held back hundreds of eager customers who waited impatiently for their first Big Macs under the trademark Golden Arches in Shenzhen, a city across the border from Hong Kong. The new restaurant, in a shopping mall, has capacity for, holy shit, 500 people. That sounds magical. That is amazing. Holy shit, like, I would love to step at foot in a 500 capacity person. First number that comes to your mind. Capacity is 500. How many active cash registers at any one time? 10. That sounds right. Yeah. Oh, God. Don't push, store manager Kenneth Lau shouted into a microphone as he stood on a tabletop in front of the cashier's post. (laughs) Line up. There's enough food for everybody. They're a little like pork buns, said David Kai, 26 of Beijing, an electronics company worker who ate a Big Mac, a large order of fries, and a Coca-Cola. He was comparing the hamburger to a popular Chinese dish of steamed bread filled with pork, which I confirmed. Yeah. Pork bun. Mmm, that's a thinker. A Big Mac has meat and bread with it, too, Cal explained. (laughs) But he complained about the service, adding, I like Kentucky Fried Chicken better. I can agree with that, I guess. Wow. Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Moving on to October 9th, Leonard Bernstein announces his retirement from conducting after 47 years. He dies five days later. Jesus. Yeah. Short retirement. I know. Here's a good article. Trump and others lose spot on richest list. Many of the countries moneyed, is that a word? It is. See their net worth drop. Oh no. Yeah. Donald J. Trump is no longer among the 400 wealthy Ameri- wealthiest Americans and may even have a net worth of zero, probably. Eh. So says Forbes magazine, which on Monday released its annual list of the super rich, a list that makes it clear that the controversial developer and others 80 and other 80s high flyers have crash landed. For the first time since Forbes began publishing the list in 1982, the minimum net worth required to join the elite ranking dropped from $275 million in 1989 to $260 million this year. They're letting anyone into that fucking list. Quote, With the end of the great 1980s credit binge, capital values almost everywhere are being marked down. Just as homeowners feel less wealthy than a year ago, so do most of the nation's rich, the magazine said. But how did they deal with it? I know, they cried into, they had to cry into $20 bills instead of hundreds. Into slightly less money. Yep. Quote, Trump is the most noteworthy loser. That's a good quote. That is a quote. It said, once a billionaire, Trump's uh, net worth may have have dropped to zero. Last year, Trump's fortune was estimated at $1.7 billion. In addition to Trump, the dropouts include Merv Griffin, whose Resorts International, which owns the casino next door to Trump's struggling Taj Mahal in Atlantic City, went bankrupt. And we all know that Trump's Taj Mahal went on to live a long, strong, healthy life. Yes. For, what, days more? 
October 10th for GI's Rock and Rap in the Desert. The United States Armed Forces started live radio broadcasts in Saudi Arabia today with a disc jockey's greeting. Good morning, Saudi Arabia! It doesn't roll off the tongue like Vietnam. Yeah, Vietnam just has a better ring to it. The format of the station, dubbed Heart of the Desert FM 107, will rock uh, with some country, folk, rap, and reggae music from a collection of 8,800 compact discs. There will also be a jazz hour on most nights. So yeah. that's when you eat, probably. Can you imagine flying over, like, almost 9,000 CDs? Oof, that's a lot. The Saudi government has put some limits on what the radio can broadcast, uh, but no one in the unit would specify what was forbidden. But evidently, there's no restriction on topical programming. The station starts the hour with the Associated Press Network News, and the first song played by the news station was a tune by British by a British rock group uh, called The Clash, and their little-known hit, Rock the Casbah. That's pretty funny. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, and you're right, it really doesn't roll off the tongue like Good Morning Vietnam. Good but. Yeah. Yeah. It should be like, greetings, Saudi Arabia. Something, something. Okay, so moving on to October 11th. Seagull Energy deal with Pickens Group. Uh, I don't actually care about the article uh, or the contents of it, but I just needed it to be known that there is a multi-million dollar company out there with the name Seagull Energy. That's pretty great. Yeah. Even Pickens feels right, because Seagulls are into Pickens. Yeah, they are. Ew. 40 whales go aground, die in New Zealand. This is out of Wellington. More than 40 pilot whales have died near New Zealand's Coromandel Peninsula over the past few days after beaching themselves, officials said Wednesday. Volunteers and conservation officers managed to coax many of the whales back to sea, but some returned to the peninsula uh, on the east coast of New Zealand's North Island or were too exhausted to survive. That's sad. That is sad. I like whales. Do you want to hear happier news? Yeah, let's uh, let's see where this is going. October 12th, Klan is told to stop imitating Mr. Rogers on the phone. A federal district judge has ordered the Missouri Knights of the Ku Klux Klan to stop playing racist telephone recordings that imitate the children's television program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Good news all around. The message imitates the sound effects and song of the program and Mr. Rogers' voice and speech patterns. They get deep here. On the first tape, the Mr. Rogers impersonator points out a black youngster on a playground and calls him a drug pusher, uh, but precedes drug pusher with a very well-known racial racial, insult. Yeah, not very nice. At the end of the tape, the clan, Jesus Christ, lynches the youth. This gets, wow. Holy shit. In a second tape. Jesus, this gets worse. And I read this. Oh my God. In a second tape, the Mr. Rogers impersonator ridicules homosexuals and says AIDS was divine retribution. What the fuck? Who wrote this and what part of the Republican Party are they in charge of now? I don't know. Oval Office? The messages, said Cynthia E. Koenig, a lawyer for Mr. Rogers, are of racism, white supremacy, and bigotry, the antithesis of everything Rogers and Family Communications, Inc. stands for. No fucking shit. No fucking kidding. Holy crap. That's insane. That's got to be an easy case for, like, the judge, though. Oh, for sure. One look at it. Yeah. You got to stop doing this. And, like, what the fuck? Like, you you just, like, sit down and, like... 
think about your lives. That's some fucked up shit. And let's move on to October 13th. There was an Earth-grazing meteoroid today, a 44-kilogram meteoroid traveling at 41.5 kilometers per second, passed above Czechoslovakia and Poland at a height of 97.9 kilometers, I think at its lowest. That's close. Yeah, so this was the first time that they were able to uh, get calculations of the orbit of such a body based on photographic records from two distant places. So there were cameras rolling in Czechoslovakia and Poland. Because of that, they were able to, you know, use some fancy math and figure things out about it. Uh, And that's a really cool thing for science and a close call for those towns in in Czechoslovakia and Poland, I imagine. Oh, definitely. Yeah. This next one is the best. Oh, yeah. October 14th, Steven Seagal wants his Oscar. With Steven Seagal's Marked for Death riding high at the box office, it grossed nearly $12 million in its first four days of release. The tough guy stars at work on his native turf, Brooklyn, where he's just started shooting his next film. It's called The Price of Our Blood, and Seagal tells us, I'm finally doing a picture I'm excited about. Holy All the other ones. He just whipped out his dick and slapped Hollywood in the mouth. Yeah. The actor and martial artist claims it's a wonderful character piece that's about friendship. Two guys who grew up together, who find themselves on different sides of the law, and then have to react to a personal tragedy. Directed by John Flynn and co-produced by Arnold Coppelson and Seagal for Warner Brothers, The Price of Our Blood is from a script by Lance Hill. Or at least it was. (laughs) I've completely rewritten it, declares Seagal unabashedly. I'm sure Lance Hill is a nice guy, but I'm also sure he's never been to Brooklyn. I've made the movie feel more real, and I've emphasized the friendship and the idea that these two guys who grew up together are suddenly working against each other. Known for his less-than-subtle action roles, Seagal adds that The Price of Our Blood is my attempt at an Academy Award. Seriously, though? In this film, audiences are going to see a performance they aren't expecting, he insists. Yeah, I could deliver an Academy Award performance, but I'm not kidding myself. Because I'm Steven Seagal, I will never get an Academy Award. That's right. The industry has already made its mind up about me. Uh, I think I think he had a little more to do with that than he's taking credit. I, I think so. Um, just to set the record straight, we have dug very deep into Steven Seagal's uh, career, and he, in fact, did never win the Academy Award. Crying shame. Let's move on to movies and music. Yeah. So this week in the box office, uh, we're going to talk about Flatliners. It's a remake. It's in theaters now. Yeah, and the original was, yeah, the original was in theaters then. It had been for 11 weeks, and it was, you know, it's a movie. It's a movie. Yeah. So the 1990 version, I think it had a pretty stellar cast for the time. Starred Kiefer Kiefer Sutherland, Julia Roberts, Billy Baldwin, Oliver Platt, and Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Yeah. So the film was about five medical students who attempt to find out what lies beyond death by conducting experiments that produce near-death experiences. They flatline. Get it? Huh? It was directed by Joel Schumacher, who frequently worked with uh, Kiefer Sutherland in uh, other movies in the late 80s. Like, uh, was he in St. Elmo's Fire? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, all those all those movies with, like, Rob Lowe and, and those guys. They work together. The we fact-checked. Yeah. Um, so, it has a 49% on Rotten Tomatoes, which isn't great, but solidly not horrible i haven't seen flatliners i don't think you have either i haven't yeah so we're we're grabbing at straws a little bit to talk about this (laughs) why did we pick this one 
Uh, it's a pretty rough week. There's okay. not a yeah, lot no, going that's, on. That's I mean, we've fair. got some Steven Seagal movie, which is probably this not is now, an Oscar-worthy This is now a Steven Seagal podcast. How do you feel about Ponytails? More on that in our 90s spotlight. Yeah. Man, what would we call our Steven Seagal co- podcast? Uh, have to be something like a, a seagull pun. Ponytails and beer guts. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, the reason we're talking about this, as Connor mentioned, they remade this film this year... And that's in box offices right now, doing probably horribly. Definitely horribly. Yeah. This year, the Danish filmmaker Niels Arden Oplev directed a remake of the film. It starred Ellen Page, Diego Luna, Nina Dobrev, James Norton, and Kiersey Clemens. I've heard of the first three. Yep. I mean, it's a good it's a good cast. I like I fucking love Ellen Page. I don't know if that's the Canadian in me, just kind of rooting for her, but like I really like Ellen Page. And Diego Luna, he did a really good job in in Rogue One, I think. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the film was released uh, a couple weeks ago alongside American Maid and Till Death Do Us Part, and was projected to gross 8 to 12 million from 2,500-ish theaters on its opening weekend. It ended up debuting to 6.6 million, finishing fifth at the box office, even before factoring in inflation. The number was lower than the $10 million opening of the original film in 1990. Yikes. Yeah. Take a guess what the Rotten Tomato score is. Mm, did, you, did you see? No, I didn't look. Okay. Like, yeah, take a guess then. 10%. Ooh, you're, uh, you're high. I'm gonna, wow. I was going to say, I thought this is garbage, but okay. It's super garbage. It's It's got a- Like five? It, four. It's Oof. currently sitting at a 4% on Rotten Tomatoes. So- I guess uh, our 90s advice for this is, spoiler alert, if you're listening to the podcast for the first time, we like the 90s, so, and I think the numbers back it up. If you're looking to watch a movie called Flatliners, watch the one from 1990, it might be a little bit better. The music is so bad this week, we're not even gonna do it. Yeah, I mean... Fuck that. If we're gonna talk about a song... Yeah, I didn't even link anything. No, it's garbage. Because I took I a look, it's bad. Yeah. No, how let's do you just... feel about? Yeah, fuck it. You know what? No, we're just doing something. We're Think doing something song. new, something old, not blue. We're gonna move to a segment called "This Week on." Yeah, we haven't done this in a little bit. Mainly, we, we have been summer, and we dropped it. Yeah. So for this week on, uh, we're gonna look at the Simpsons. Bart gets an F. This is from season two, episode one. Uh, but first, some background. Due to the show's success during its abbreviated first season, Fox decided to move The Simpsons from its Sunday night lineup. The move came as the still-fledgling network was adding two additional nights of programming to its lineup, one of which was Thursday. Fox placed The Simpsons in a leadoff position of their lineup uh, for their initial Thursday offering, uh, with the new sitcom Babes and a new Aaron Spelling-produced drama called Beverly Hills 90210. What do, you, what do you think that number is? Is it like a phone number, maybe? or uh... 8675? Uh, yeah. I don't know. More on that later. Uh, I think it's Beaverly Hills, right? Oh, they're, they're a bunch of beavers. I get it. Yeah. Uh, so this offered competition for the lineups fielded by other networks, including the ratings champion NBC. I wonder how that worked out for NBC. The Simpsons settled into the 8 p.m. position, which put it in direct competition with the five-time defending number one show in all of television, The Cosby Show. Ooh. Bart Gets an F was the first episode to air against The Cosby Show and averaged an 18.4 Nielsen rating and a 29% of the audience. In the week's ratings, it finished tied for 8th behind The Cosby Show, which had an 18.5 rating. However, an estimated 33.6 million viewers watched the episode, making it the number one show in terms of actual viewers that week. And at the time, 
it was the most watched episode in the history of Fox. Ratings-wise, the new episodes of The Cosby Show beat The Simpsons every time during the second season, and The Simpsons eventually fell out of the top ten. It would not be until the third season episode, Homer at Bat, that The Simpsons would beat The Cosby Show in the ratings. The show remained in its Thursday time slot until the sixth season. Let's be real. Homer at Bat is a really good episode. Oh, it's and an makes excellent episode. Beat The Cosby Show. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, on to the actual episode. Bart fails a test and he's told that he has one more chance to pass or he will be held back a year. Bart tries to get the class genius Martin Prince to help him, but after that fails... Bart prays for help. I just, I love this episode. It's a really good one. That night, Springfield is hit with a massive blizzard and the school is closed, giving him one more day to study. Despite his desperate attempts, Bart fails the test again. While crying, he mentions an obscure historical event and Mrs. Krabappel, noticing that he applied practical knowledge, passes him. That's a pretty good way to sum up the episode. And that was a really, for me, that was a quintessential Simpsons moment. You saw that Bart, beyond being the bad boy actually does care he yeah, tried well, he put an effort and like any of us he was disappointed when his efforts didn't pay off didn't pay off yeah sometimes you can try and you can still fail and i think that's a really important that's an important lesson for kids oh, to absolutely. learn especially when you're not the best when you're not the brightest i know i don't think either of us were ever in danger of failing a grade in elementary school no. but I imagine if you're if you're skirting that line, it's not a great prospect. And from the other side of it, like Edna Krabappel was always a hard ass on Bart because he was always a he's shit. A dick, yeah. But in this moment where he shows that he genuinely cared and put in the effort, mm-hmm. she understands that, respects it, and gives him what he's earned. Yeah, and I don't think either of us are overly religious people, but no. just as an episode, even just praying to the to a higher power. And it granting his wish, that's still, it was a good moment, especially really for a show that, you know, a show that was really different at the time. Fuck, this was a, a good start to the Simpsons second season, I think. Oh, definitely. And it's definitely, it's a, it's a good episode. Yeah. Um, Everything about, like, it's, it's well written, like. It's what the Simpsons used to be. It's what, the, yeah. It's just this is one and of those classic Simpsons episodes that makes you feel good about the show. And and yeah, it really is. And it's you know the Simpsons evolved. Like a lot of the the height of the Simpsons, seasons four to seven, are a lot different than this. The Simpsons really found its footing after probably about season three, and it was different than the kinds of shows that they were producing in the first and second season. There were a lot more morals and stuff in, in the beginning. Yeah. And there were some pros, there were some cons to that, but I think this was definitely a pro. There was a moral lesson to this, and it it never ham-fisted itself down our throats. It didn't, you know, unlike the Cosby show, it didn't crush up any pills into our drinks and try to try to pull a fast wow. one on us. It was a good episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> Fuck, there's that sucks for the Cosby show. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Like yeah, Oh yeah, it's all it's permanently stained. Yeah, it's a fucking, like, white sheet that had wine spilled over it because you passed out. Mm. Anyway, so like I was saying, welcome back into the fold this week on. Uh, let's, we have a really short 90s spotlight because something, something wonderful has happened. And I'd like to kind of parlay that back into the 90s. So th- this week's 90s spotlight is on Star Wars video games. Just, just a little one. Yeah, so micro spotlight, mini spotlight. Today, I downloaded and got to play... Uh, the Star Wars Battlefront 2 open beta. And how is it? Holy shit, is it fun. Okay. So you can, like, you start out, 
you can either do like ground assault type battles, like getting positions, taking positions, or just like deathmatch style. Uh, and there's also fighters. So in space, using all the sweet ships. Mm-hmm. And your beginning options are just basic. Like it, it's Empire side okay. or obviously or the, or, the, or the Rebel Alliance. So you have your A-Wing and your X-Wing and your bomber. Or you have, you know, you have your standard regular old stormtrooper, your assault trooper, your cap, your commander, that kind of thing. But as you go on and you get more kills and you rack up points, you can spend those points. And like in space, I got to play Slave One. What? It was fucking cool. That's pretty cool. Or like you can get Darth Maul or Mm. Han Solo. Like there are all these, you know, characters. Like unlockable characters. Yeah. And obviously this is just, this is just a beta. So not everyone and everything is available. But it looks like there are going to be a shit ton of stages and like there's all sorts of like this game looks like they're really trying to make up for the last few bad, generally bad Star Wars games. And that's good because, yeah, like uh, like, the last Battlefront was, from what I heard, pretty awful. People were not impressed. Yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm glad because, well, they're trying to harken back to what we knew. Like my favorite Star Wars game is Rogue Squadron. I think. And I would came have out, to agree with that. Yeah, and that came out in December 98. It mm-hmm. was super fun. Oh, I played that for so many hours. I mean, and that's fuck, one of the greatest things about video games in this era, in this, you know, early 3D era, is just being able to immerse yourself in this film world that you've also grown up with. Yep. To be able to fly through the streets of Moss Eisley in Rogue Squadron it was, the was best incredible to be able to just uh, fly like uh to fly an x-wing to shoot the lasers oh using those cheat codes to get to the millennium falcon yeah so cool like that is something that i think we take for granted nowadays if there's a good video game series if or not video game series if there's a good movie franchise if there's a good tv series there's probably a tie-in game there is something that will also immerse you in that world so we take I don't know, being able to just walk into a world like that for granted. And back then, that was, I think, our first real glimpse into that. That maybe along with GoldenEye, but I never, I hadn't watched GoldenEye. I had, but I understand it. And we also, after episode one came out, we had pod racing and that was a great game. Say what you will, but episode one. You have to remember we were 10 or 11 at the time, so we liked episode one. We sure did. Yeah, because we were the target age. That pod racing game was legitimately excellent it was wizard. it was fun like you could you built your pod racer and you were able to customize it as you went so you're constantly taking your winnings from each race and getting you know a newer couplink a stronger engine like it was so fun and tough like not contra level tough not sega <laughs> lion king level tough but i never fully beat it i couldn't and i played that thing for like i poured there's no way i didn't put 200 hours in that game into pod racer or rogue squad oh boy way more into rogue squad and i wouldn't be surprised if i had 400 in that game yeah i played a lot of rogue squad they're but, yeah, both I don't think super I fun it. so it's nice stepping into a star wars game and like thinking back to like i i remember when rogue squadron came out and my parents got it for me for my birthday i remember opening the box so excited and knowing that the future that we live in right now, these Star Wars games are so pretty and they're yeah. so 
intense and like when i've got like better oh right i've got like i've got sweet headphones so like this like you're in it like you turn all the lights off in the room and holy shit i'm flying an x-wing mm. and oh man i just took down a tie bomber how sweet is that yeah it's there's something indescribably magical about it I'm going to I'm going to steer things a little bit in the Star Trek direction for a second How as I usually no, do. Fine. Yeah. And yeah, things are going to get better as I said. There are a few fan projects uh that are dedicated to recreating the Enterprise D based on things we see in the TV show as well cool. as technical manuals as well as filling in the blanks because things were never complete. So these are things that will eventually be available in VR that you can walk around like a fully replicated version of the Enterprise D. And I haven't looked into it, but I imagine if there isn't already, at some point someone will make like un will create this for things in the Star Wars universe. How cool would be uh, would it be to have like a completely functional Millennium Falcon to walk around? Gonna one up this. How fucked would it be? For there to be a completely functional level by level Death Star. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be sweet. In like VR. Like just no I game. Hope, I hope VR is the future. I hope like just there are projects dedicated to recreating these worlds so we can immerse themselves in it in the next level that these games back in the mid to late 90s did right. uh, for us then. Before we move on, I uh, I want to read one thing that we came across when we were looking at the Wikipedia article for Rogue Squadron. Sure. So, during Rogue Squadron's development, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, the first new Star Wars film in more than 15 years, was less than one year from its scheduled release date. To take advantage of this marketing opportunity, Factor 5, uh, one of the development companies alongside of LucasArts involved with making the game, included content from the upcoming film uh, in Rogue Squadron. Lucasfilm provided the developers with design art for the Naboo Starfighter. Oh. Yeah. Uh, a ship prominently featured in the new film. These designs are used to create an in-game model. Because the game was scheduled to be released six months before the film, Factor Five was required to keep the ship's inclusion a secret. As a result, most of the game's development team at Factor Five and LucasArts were not informed of its inclusion. A complex scrambling system was also developed to help hide the ship's code from gamers using cheat cartridges such as the Game Shark or Action Replay. More than six months after the release of Rogue Squad, LucasArts unveiled the code to unlock the Naboo Starfighter as a playable craft. The code had been named N64's most well-hidden code because of the length of time before its discovery. And that is really cool. I remember I was always a sucker for the new, or in this case, old because of the prequel. I played as a Naboo Starfighter all the time. Oh, I loved it. That was so cool. Yeah, it was so shiny. It was like an iPod before the iPod came out. Ooh, that's that's good. Let's leave it there. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our sponsorship segment. I see what you've written. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested. All right. So this week, Stuck in the 90s is brought to you by Saginaw Cheese. Cheese, it's good. As always, you can find Stuck in the 90s on the internet. We are online at stuckinthe90spodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram, Stuck in the 90s Podcast. We are on Twitter at SIT90s. We've been slacking. We slacked this week. I don't think we posted anything. It happens. It does happen. We'll you've get been, there. You've been real busy this week. I've been pretty busy you this week. You had an engagement party. Literally yesterday. Yeah. Also, there's half a keg in my house. I'm not going to tell you where I live, but if you show up, I'll give you beer. 
I have a lot. Seriously, a lot of beer. It's good beer, too. At my house. I should have drank more. It's a big keg. Um, it is a big keg. What else? Next week, we'll do a week. It'll probably be mid to late 90s, because this week was 1990. We I have a little bit of a pattern. I almost want to say it's 99. I think it I might believe be that. 99. So, you know, let's we just do that sometimes. October 15th to 20-something. 21. Possibly 99. Maybe Asterix 99. there, because it might not be. We'll figure it out later. Yeah. Uh, I think that's about all I've got for this one. I have nothing else to add. Um, all right. You know, we've been we've been a podcast. You've been a listener. Yeah, hopefully. You've stopped listening 10 minutes ago. And we'll stop talking now because the podcast is, is now, now over. over.